You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. A new week, a new episode. Our guest this week is a significant operator, former White House Press Secretary Mike McCurry. Mike is a good friend. He is director of the Center for Public Theology and a distinguished professor of public theology at the at Wesley Theological Seminary. Uh, and so you're going to hear about that journey from Mike. We're going to get his insight on uh, presidential elections. Uh, Mike was also former co-chair of the, the Commission on Presidential Debates uh, for overseeing the 2016 presidential debates. So he's just a wonderful guest to have on, a wonderful person. Excited for you to hear from Mike. Look, uh, last week I provided a longer opening segment than usual. Thought it was a, a good time to provide significant updates on, on the general election on how uh, both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign were approaching faith. Don't have as long of a, a segment for you this week. I uh, want to cover just uh, a few updates on polling, on uh, fundraising, and then talk about a dynamic that I've been seeing in the wake of the Mueller endorsement and how evangelicals are are sort of approaching this and and give you give you some thoughts on that. First, let's jump into polling really Three areas of polling to talk about. The the first would be Trump's approval rating has dropped a bit since a high in early March. But what we're really seeing is a consolidation of Trump's base. Now that the presidential election is in full swing, uh, now that Republican voters are have gone through months of hearing from uh, Democrats uh, in a in a Democratic primary, uh, we're seeing a consolidation of Trump's base I expect will continue through the general. And so Trump is uh, has a 46% approval rating. Now, typically, <laughs> typically heading into a election, if the incumbent was below 50%, that, that was a key benchmark. And I think it's still a key benchmark. It's just people are very worried about going by any of the "Quote unquote old rules of politics," but I think it's still that his average at a high point is four points below a majority of Americans having approval of a majority of Americans. I think that's significant when you think about his chances of re-election. So that's his approval rating. National polls continue to show Joe Biden up by about an average of six points. But a CNN poll in early April had him up by as much as 11. But of course, national polls only mean so much in a presidential election contest. At the state level, we talked about this last week. I'm seeing positive signs in not just Biden's Rust Belt numbers, but Arizona, a, a positive poll in Florida came out. Uh, one decision the Biden campaign is going to have to make is, you know, Biden has made commitments that he's going to beat Trump like a drum. Part of the appeal of Biden from the beginning was the idea that he would be able to play in many different states. Uh, but the Biden campaign is going to have to decide how many states they really want to have operations in and whether they risk losing by not investing heavily in the four or five battleground states that everyone, you know, or that I shouldn't say everyone, that, that 
a lot of people think this is going to come down to, or you know whether they risk not winning states that they could have won because they focus too narrowly. I mean, that's just going to be a critical decision for them moving forward. But look, I know it's like the popular thing to say, oh, Trump's going to win again, especially among progressives. That's how they show like how much they've learned from 2016. I think right now, Biden is favored. That does not mean that he is likely to win in November. I think Biden would be likely to win now. (laughs) Uh, one, One of the things that is going to change between now and November, in addition to all the things we just don't know, Trump has an immense fundraising advantage. The Biden campaign released numbers for March, the best of his campaign so far. They raised about $47 million, uh, in the month of March. Here's the problem. Trump has a $183 million fundraising advantage. And so that's going to show up in all kinds of ways. And the Biden campaign is working to close the gap as much as possible. But it's not going to be closed. Frankly, it's not going to be – it's not going to come close to to, to being closed and so the Biden campaign has to be efficient with the money they spend, and they have to be um, wise with with where where they invest. Uh, one of the ways, just as an article reference, one of the ways this is going to show up. Uh, there's a really helpful article in the Atlantic last week, headline: "How Facebook Works for Trump." A story by Ian Bogos and Alexis Madrigal, who's wonderful. And the article looks into how the Trump campaign in 2016 and today is, is using Facebook as a centerpiece of their strategy to reach voters and how Facebook advertising really helps facilitate that in a particularly effective way that the, the Trump campaign's been able to optimize. So, you know, I think, I think that's, that's, that's where Things stand right now. Well, we'll do longer updates as they're justified. There isn't a whole lot of new act in the faith space right now. Biden has said that on May 1st, he will announce uh, the group he set up to do the vice presidential search for him. So that'll be a, a key inflection point. Now we're really in the stage of the race before the convention where I think Biden's going to continue to try and consolidate the Democratic Party behind him. And we're going to see groundwork being laid. The seeds will be planted now that will help us see what direction these campaigns think they can take in order to get to victory. And so these months are critical. Uh, But generally, you, you know, I don't think we're going to have an all-consuming presidential race in the next couple of months. I think typically that's the case, but but also obviously because of the uh, the coronavirus, I think it just limits what the candidates can do. All right, the the last topic I want to discuss before we get to the interview is look, and, and I'm not going to talk about this too long at this point. I really just want to make the point so that it's on the record. <laughs> And uh, then can elaborate it on it down the road. And, and like, just to be completely transparent, the reason for that is that talking too much about this kind of defeats the, the point. And th- the last sort of caveat I'll make is this is not sort of a personal attack or, or criticism of, of anyone. And this is just generally what I'm seeing on this, on the scene, which is this idea that both in the case of Mueller 
And then we've had a rash of uh, folks who have viewed the proper response to Mueller. In the, and I'm talking about evangelicals here. That, that the proper response to Mueller in his endorsement of Trump, they, they see the primary problem with that being that Mueller announced who he was voting for and that he's supporting anyone at all. And so instead, we've seen this rash of folks who have been like, I'm not so, neither are good enough for me. I couldn't in good conscience vote for either of them. And this is my principled stand. All right. On the individual level, five people got to make their own decisions. What I want to question is like that, that that is a model for political engagement. Uh, I also want to question the idea that the, the problem with Mueller is that he, just supported the wrong candidate. No, as I discussed last week and on uh, on Substack, the problem was how he did it. The problem was how he thought through it, how he talked through it, the 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 lack of nuance that he he advanced. And I'd say the the problem with basically checking out. The problem was saying neither of these candidates are good enough for me. Well, look, we got seven months of a campaign left. One. Two, if you're going to say Biden isn't good enough for you, or if in 2016 Trump wasn't good enough for you, then I'm really interested to know what you did to try and make sure that they were not the nominee for their party. In other words, if it's so clear that you're going to, as a leader, and I'm talking about leaders here, people with with credibility that people listen to, if things are so clear that you're going to declare both candidates off limits for your vote, then things were clear enough in the primary to say, well, this, well, this other candidate would have been better than them. And then I'd also say the Democrats had 18, 20 <laughs> candidates running. Were none of them good enough for you? Really? Out of 20 people? Again, listen, I write about this in the book. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'm going to be talking about this quite a bit in the coming months. A vote is not a sign, is not signing over your conscience. A vote is not an endorsement of every position a candidate holds. Your vote is your decision about how best to steward the limited influence you have for the good of your neighbor. Now, we can make a whole long argument about this, and I'm going to skip over a lot of it to just the conclusion, which is uh, this. Outside of former presidents, we have never had someone not from one of the two major parties uh, as president. So that's that's A. The second argument I'll put out there, the second line of the argument, is that who becomes president, it, it deeply impacts the American people, impacts your neighbors. And so we got to be really careful about symbolic votes and symbolic actions when it comes to when it comes to voting, voting is not a symbolic act, nor are you responsible solely as an individual for the options that you have. And in a Christian context, I get frustrated when people talk as if Jesus does not understand our politics. Like they'll have a hard time explaining to Jesus how the names on the ballot ended up there. <laughs> Look, you are not responsible as an individual for the political decisions that you're confronted with. You're responsible for the decisions that you make. You're accountable for how the, the, the process you go through to cast your vote. 
to decide where you stand on an issue. And so, look, as individuals, I leave open that an individual may decide in an election not to vote, to vote third party. Again, I've been very firm on the idea that voting is not something that we should raise how you vote. The the, the decision you make in the ballot box should not be raised to the level of Christian dogma except in the most extreme circumstances. What needs to be raised to the level of Christian dogma is, is how you think about your vote. And there are, there are some rationales that are not Christian, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about voting, how to vote, how to think about voting. That's really a precursor to the main point I want to make, which is to leaders, to those who influence people. And that is simply to say that now is not the wisest time to be declaring your presidential preference, particularly if that preference is nobody's good enough for me, uh, I'm sitting out this election, dun, dun, dun. This is the time, months and months out from the election, to think about how you can leverage the fact that you have not made an announcement yet, that your vote is in the air and then ostensibly the votes of those who listen to you, to get concessions from one or both of the candidates to make them more acceptable, to get commitments on the record that would make it so that their presidency led to greater flourishing. Instead, what concerns me is a lot of the political statements I'm seeing seem to be about personal brand management and not wise stewardship of influence for the civic life of our country in a way that benefits our neighbors. This is politics as self-expression, and it's politics as self-expression when it's tribal partisan politics, and it's politics as self-expression if it's this cultivated aloofness, this cultivated aboveness of set-apartness from politics, which, like it or not, you as an individual are embroiled in. And the most vulnerable are inextricably, uh, inextricably uh, implicated in. And so <laughs> there's a lot more I could say there. I, I have specific things in mind when I say that uh, instead of announcing voter preferences, you should be leveraging the influence you have to get concessions out of candidates. When we're talking about evangelicals, actually, l- let me, let me, let me be blunt in case this is helpful to folks. We have an incumbent president who literally cannot win without the support, the strong, uh, really nearly unanimous support of white evangelicals. And we have in the Democratic nominee someone who uh, – a few things here. One, needs the same level of unanimous support among African Americans, generally evangelical and not. He needs to – extend his margin among Hispanic voters, including Hispanic evangelicals and Catholics. And in the Rust Belt, he needs to make sure that at the very least, he does not lose white evangelicals by any more than uh, than Hillary Clinton did, and, and really ought to be aiming for at least Obama-level numbers among white evangelicals, which he's more than capable of. And so evangelicals, white evangelicals, evangelicals of color, all have significant influence. And if, if you're a political actor, if you're involved in a, in a political party, 
then this doesn't apply so so much to you. If you're someone who's regularly endorsing people, then then your influence is going to be leveraged in a different way. But for these folks who who don't have an established who who, who people don't know who you're voting for anyway already, th- think about not making that announcement right now. <laughs> And taking the taking the personal hits, taking the suspicion you'll get from some of your peers. Oh, why? I can't believe they haven't announced that they're going to support Trump or Biden. How dare they even consider voting for? Like, take those personal hits, take those brand hits, and think about how you could steward the influence you have to create an environment where one or both of the candidates get in a better place. All right. Well, that's uh, that's what I have to say about uh, the presidential election on this episode. You're, we're going to talk more about the general election, though, with my, my guest, uh, Mike McCurry. We'll do a, a full introduction of him after a break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast, and my guest is Mike McCurry. Mike is the director of the Center for Public Theology and a distinguished professor of public theology at the Wesley Theological Seminary in the nation's capital. Uh, Mike has nearly four decades of experience in Washington. He served as White House Press Secretary to President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 1998. He served as spokesman for the U.S. Department of State uh, from 1993 to 1995 and director of communications for the DNC from 1988 to 1990. Mike held a variety of leadership roles in national campaigns for the Democratic ticket from 1984 to 2004. He worked as a press secretary in the U.S. Senate from uh, (laughs) 1976 to 1983, serving Senators Harrison Williams of New Jersey and Daniel Patrick Moynihan from New York. Mike serves on uh, boards, including the board of uh, Share Our Strength, the White House Historical Association, uh, the Global Health Initiative of the United Methodist Church. He's a former co-chair of the Commission on Presidential Debates. Mike is a good friend, someone I've leaned on over the years, who uh, really is a tremendous voice in our politics generally and at the intersection of faith and politics. And we're so glad to have him on. I, I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Mike McCurry. Welcome to the Faith 2020 podcast. Uh, Mike, how are you? Uh, it's great to be with you, Michael. It's uh, so great to have have you. I've been looking forward to having you on the show uh, for uh, qu- quite quite a long time. Before we kind of get into this year's presidential election, would love to just uh, hear from you a bit about your career, how you d- made the decision to to go to seminary to to, to lead the center. You're uh, you lead at, at Wesley Seminary now, and and just tell us a little bit about how in your life faith is intersected with politics. Well, I you know obviously had a, a long career in politics. I got involved in uh, working in the U.S. Senate, and then later at the White House and at the State Department and other places after I graduated from college in 1976. And uh, I, you know, had a good run at that, and that was all interesting. But when I got out of the White House in 1998, my senior pastor at my local Methodist church said, 
well, we're so glad you're you're done with all of that now because we actually have a real job for you. And I said, well, what, what would that be? And he said, we want you to be the superintendent of the Sunday school. <laughs> Quite improbably, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm very flattered that you would want me to do that. But why, why, why did you think I was the right person for that? And there was like a long silence. And the senior pastor, a guy named Chet Kirk, wonderful guy, said, well, because we haven't been able to get anyone to do this job for 10 years. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up, I ended up, uh, you know, becoming the superintendent of the Sunday school at my local United Methodist Church here in Kensington, Maryland, and uh, quickly realized I didn't know what I was doing. So I looked around and figured out, oh, there's this program at Wesley Theological Seminary that actually helps equip, you know, lay leaders in local churches. And so I signed up for that. And because of that, got very engaged with the people. I think someone over there said, wait a minute, is this guy in our class? Mike McCurry used to be the press secretary to President Clinton. And so I think they, they, glommed, they glommed onto that very quickly. Uh, and before too long, I was on the board of governors at Wesley Seminary. And then I got convinced by a, a wonderful guy, the dean of the faculty, to actually enrolling classes there. So I got my master's degree in theology and have been very active and engaged there ever since. So it's kind of my full-time occupation now is I direct a program called the Center for Public Theology at uh, Wesley Seminary. We, we try to get young students, uh, you know, equipped to deal with politics and faith in local congregational or local ministry settings. And, uh, and that's a challenge. And these are, you know, faith and politics sometimes don't mix very well together. And uh, so that that is that's kind of what my vocation is now. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to dig into there. I, I will ask, and I wasn't planning on asking about this, but we haven't talked a lot about McGovern on this podcast, but I know from talking with people like Ron Sider and, uh, you know, friends of ours, uh, Jim Wallace. Uh, what, what was, was that McGovern race? Uh, you, you mentioned you got into politics, uh, in 76, I think you said, was that McGovern race meaningful to you? Uh, were, were you, uh, involved in that or sort of watching that closely? What did McGovern's presidential campaign mean to you? If, if, if anything? I think that was 1972, right? Yeah, yeah, right. The race was in 72. So I was wondering if if when you got, I think you said your your first job in politics was in 76. So I was wondering if if the McGovern race was was something that sort of prompted you to to get involved in politics. Well, I was growing up in California. Actually, it was uh, four years prior to that, 1968. And I, my first job was being a, uh, I went out and hung uh, door hangers, you know, for uh, yeah. remind, reminding people to vote for Bobby Kennedy in the 1968 race. And of course, wow. so that was the the painful experience of going, you know, Kennedy won the California primary in 1968. And then yeah. I remember going to bed that night and then my parents had to come in the next morning and say, well, there's something bad has happened. Um, oh goodness! Yeah. Senator Kennedy sure. has been shot. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would imagine that that led some people to be 
sort of turned off of of politics and and just sort of uh gosh this is this is too this is too difficult but but it seems like your reaction was something different well it, it you know i worked for one point at where daniel patrick Moynihan, yeah. and he has a great memory of of that very fateful day and he was talking to his friend and said, you know, there's no point in being Irish if you don't know the world will break your heart someday. <laughs> and it was, it was just, you know, it's kind of a rueful memory of what it meant. But it would also remind you that there were consequential things happening, you know. And so we think back to 1968. Actually, we, you and I happen to be talking today on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day which uh, right. I remember very well from being a high school kid 50 <laughs> years ago on the first Earth Day. And, you know, those those memories of what we did and how we organized ourselves to get work done and how we did things together, I mean, those are very collective memories that we should really kind of embed in our uh, the way in which we – interact with each other now because we're becoming too distant and we're seeing ourselves polarized in politics and in other places. And I think we really need to figure out ways in which we come together and uh, create something of what we call the common good, which is, I know it's something you, you have spent a lot of time thinking about. Just tell me how you've been processing the, the Trump presidency uh, uh, before we get to sort of the presidential election what, what do you think that this presidency means particularly when it comes to to faith uh to, to faith in politics uh what has been the the import of of this presidency in your mind well it's a, it's a tough question because you know sometimes i just watch in amusement uh the 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 daily Trump show. And then there are other times that I get angry about it and just sort of say, this is ridiculous. This is not yeah. the way in which a modern presidency functions. And, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to colleagues and others who have served in presidencies going back, you know, for a long time. I mean, my, my time was a long time ago. My, my daughter likes to say, Dad, you know, you were a big wheel at the White House, but that was in the last century. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, so a lot of time has passed, but um, the people that I know and I have, you know, spent time with both Republican, you know, political operatives and people who worked in Republican presidencies and then the people obviously I knew from the Democratic White Houses that I work with, you know, there's a respect for the integrity of the institution and Mm. the importance of the institution, the presidency. And I think what I would say 90% of all the people that I engage with now, they lament the loss of that belief that the institution of the presidency is something that has to be upheld and protected. And uh, and venerated, and mm. there's just not a feeling that you get that from the current occupant of the White House, and so I mean, it's a, in some ways, it's kind of a sad thing. Um, yeah. So even if you know, sometimes I just kind of 
roll my eyes and laugh at what I see. At the same time, I sort of say, well, that's not the way in which this institution of the presidency mm. needs to function. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, and, it, you know, it seems like uh, the former vice president, Joe Biden, that that's, uh, that's part of his, his message. From a 30,000 foot view, you know, looking at the whole race, you know, he is now clearly the presumptive nominee. How do you feel about the campaign that Joe Biden has run so far? And 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 do you think that he, he offers a good matchup against President Trump? In, in other words, how do you feel about the race generally? And then we'll then we'll get into some of the faith dynamics. Well, here's a here's a general observation. I think successful presidential campaigns are born from three important ingredients. The first is you, one, have to be demonstrably capable of doing the job that you have to go like, you know, you have to be able to, it's a hard job. And so you've got to have some credentials that sort of suggest I will do the job well. I think the second thing is that you need to have a strong character. You need to be someone who the American people can look to and have some trust in and rely upon, particularly at difficult moments. You can see where I'm going with this if we evaluate where we are currently. <laughs> but then the third thing is, and this is the most important thing, is that you need an argument about the future of the country. You know, so many presidential candidates and so many politicians that I've seen over many years now, they like to start their speeches by talking about all the stuff that they've done in the past. You know, why they have good credentials and why they have, you know, I did this and I did that. You know, people, frankly, don't, you know, they, they, they'll they be interested in that only after they hear, well, what, where are you taking us in the future? Where is the, you know, how do we inspire people and think about where we're going to be five years from now, 10 years from now? That is the important ingredient in American politics, that people who can really get us to think about, here's what we could collectively do together and where we could go. I think that that's the most powerful element of presidential politics. So you know, if you run back through that evaluation, you can probably easily guess <laughs> what <laughs> think of the current situation that we're in. But the but that's that's Biden's challenge is to he's got all the credentials he's got all the right you know experience um, he certainly is a person of strong character he's gone through so many life experiences that really you know would challenge anyone and he has both survived those and and thrived from them and it's made him a stronger person but that third element which is what is your vision for the future of the country? I think that's where he's got to fill in some blanks, which he hasn't quite done yet. Yeah, that, Mike, that that makes great sense to makes great sense to me. I know, you know, from my, just my time uh, uh, working in presidential campaigns and White House, just how 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 helpful you have been as as a partner and the insight you have on so many levels, but obviously. Uh, particularly from your current position, um, 
you're you're doing a lot of work on on faith these days, and so I'm I'm interested how you think the the sort of faith electorate how is that shaping up in in this election, and and what do you think are going to be some of the key dynamics of of how faith influences this election? Great book on this subject, American Grace, which I know that you know well by Robert yeah. Putnam and David Campbell, yeah. and it really it, it sort of looks at the differences between Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals on where they are on the spectrum of how faith impacts politics. And it is pretty well argued that if you are a person of faith and a regular worshiper and faith is important to you, it is much more likely that you are on the conservative Republican side of the spectrum. And if you're secular and, you know, worship attendance and uh, things like that are not part of your life, well, it's probably more likely that you are on the blue side and more uh, on the liberal progressive side of the political spectrum. I mean, I mean, it's not universally true. And of course, I'm probably an example of the, the, that proves the contrary thesis. You know, there is this polarization that exists both in the faith community and then kind of uh, impacts our politics, and it's a it's, it's a troubling one to me. And and what I do, the work I do now is how does the church respond to that, or how do you you know if you're training young seminarians to go out and work in the church, can we make them better equipped to bring people together for authentic dialogue, for real mm-hmm. genuine conversations about uh, you know how do we bridge some of the differences we have. You know, some differences can't be bridged because there are some absolutes. I mean, and there are some things that just yeah. you, you can't compromise on, uh, depending on what your beliefs are. But there are so many other areas in which people in the pews who sit next to each other and they're Republicans and Democrats and have different persuasions, uh, maybe they could find ways to define what we call this common good that we could all work towards. and. I think that's important work for us to be doing in the church and certainly in the training we do at a seminary for people who are going to go out and serve the church. It has been fascinating to see the role faith has played just in this race so far on the Democratic side. You had a number of candidates who are at the very least conversant about faith, Uh, thinking of Senator Cory Booker, thinking of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, but also Senator Warren, obviously Joe Biden. Uh, and so that has been interesting to see. And in, in my view, it, it's been very different on that front in terms of just volume and the, and the role faith has played in this, in this primary as opposed to, to 2016. And then, you know, I, I think we have a it's such a straight shot of what we expect to see from Donald Trump. For those of us, especially those of us who pay attention to the, to these issues, uh, who aren't sort of surprised that President Trump plans to go after uh, Black and Hispanic evangelicals, as the Washington Post uh, reported last week, uh, it, it, they're really, I don't expect many surprises when it comes to how the Republican candidate's going to approach the the faith vote. Um, What do you think Joe Biden's best opportunities are when it comes to the diverse faith community in America? 
Well, I mean, he is a person of strong faith and has talked about that. It has sustained him in some pretty awful life experiences that he's had to go through. But there's some kind of furtive quality in which Democrats seem reluctant to talk about faith and talk about how they are motivated by their own faith convictions to do what they think is the right thing to do in the public square. And that, that, that's something that I have really tried to work hard in, you know, when I put on my political hat and talk to my political friends, I said, you know, there, there's a huge faith community in, out there in America that would really respond positively to a lot of the ideas that we from the progressive center left want to put forward because of the things that we believe in, the things that we think are important about the quality of life and the role of government and what we need to be doing to help the people who are really, you know, in many ways helpless. And that can come from a place of faith, and but we, but we need to talk about it. And there's there's just kind of a, an amazing reluctance sometimes on the Democratic side to do that. And I, I think it's because we, we bought into this notion that, well, the religious people are all right-wingers and they're all conservatives and, you know, that's not really our people. Um, and that, it just is miss, missing such an important element of what we could bring into the political equation. I mean, I'm not, I, I never would want religion to be the battleground for political fights, but I do think that you can't be absent from the battlefield if you are a progressive liberal Democrat and you need to talk about how faith shapes and, in, and informs the way in which you uh, bring your political perspectives into the public square and, and, and what difference you think you can make and why you think you make and why your faith shapes uh, some of what you would want to do politically. And I, it's just not a vocabulary or a vernacular that many Democratic politicians and candidates are that comfortable with. Uh, so I, you know, I personally, I mean, when, when I'm working on the political side, I sort of say, we got to get over this, folks. We got to learn how to talk faith talk when we are doing our politics. And, you know, it, it's, 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 not, it, it, it's not something that should make you uncomfortable. It's something that ought to liberate you to make a new kind of argument that is obviously going to be pretty persuasive. Now, the Republican right, the evangelical right, has had no problem with that. I mean, they've kind of, this is inspired and motivated a lot of the way in which they do politics on that side of the political equation. And they're comfortable with that. And, uh, you know, some people maybe are not all that comfortable with it, but uh, they do it. And even Donald Trump, who is, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to kind of locate where he is on the faith spectrum, but, but you, you can certainly locate him on knowing that this is important, that I have this community behind me. And, and, and you, reference, you reference the fact that they are looking for ways to kind of open up some avenues now in different parts of the evangelical community, which is, you know, that, that is one of the fascinating things about politics in our recent time. We've got, you know, 80% plus of white evangelicals have supported 
a president who probably behaves in a way or has certain personal aspects that most of them would find offensive if they've you know located that in their own family or in their own community but they have made adjustments to that because they're looking for an agenda that they want to see pursued and and so not surprisingly the republicans are saying well there's got to be you know other ways in which we can kind of crack the evangelical uh, noodle here and and find some other uh, parts of the evangelical community whether it's hispanic the, the fastest growing part of the evangelical world in America or the black evangelical community, that, that if we get a portion of that vote, that that could, you know, be very much in our political interests as we think ahead to the campaign, you know, later in the fall. I wasn't planning on uh, asking this, but uh, something you said there made me think of it. Uh, on, on last week's episode, I spoke a bit about Al Mohler, who's a prominent figure in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, president of uh, seminary, uh, he uh, decided to flip from his position in 2016, uh, where uh, he said that he uh, could not uh, endorse uh, Trump. Uh, he said uh, in 2016, if I were to support, much less endorse Donald Trump for president, I would actually have to go back and apologize to former President Bill Clinton. In, in other words, he Moeller in back in the 90s said that Bill Clinton was a, quote, living dem- demonstration of the fact that character matters and that a lack of character can be fatal for leadership. I, I'm, I'm interested in just... Uh, we have a number of figures, whether it's James Dobson, uh, now Al Mohler, who very much talked about the importance of, and obviously we could have uh, extensive conversations about whether their critiques of Clinton were entirely uh, justified, but now there's this question of hypocrisy. Uh, they were very eager to talk about some of these things uh, in the 90s when it was a Democrat in office. And, and now sort of the, the, the matrix here doesn't quite stack up the, the same way. Their political decisions seem to be influenced by different factors. Have, have you re- reflected on that at all? What, did it, what has it been like for you to see uh, Republicans sort of falling in line behind Donald Trump, who you know had a very different approach to these kinds of issues, uh, conversations about char- the importance of character um, uh, back in the nineties. I, I can tell from your from what you just your your question there that you're struggling with this, and I, I have to say, <laughs> I I have to say I struggle with it too, and. You know, character is important, but it is true that we probably, and we make our evaluations of the politicians that we want to lead us and the people we want to elect, we probably are most interested in what difference is this going to make for me and for my family. Mm. And I think that we see people setting aside issues of character when they think that the outcome that will be produced is in the interests of their family. Uh, It will help them move ahead, will help them economically, will help them, you know, uh, do what they want to do as a family. 
I mean, it was true of Clinton. I mean, I think a lot of people obviously had, you know, issues about everything we know about from his own personal behavior that caused uh, great problems. But then at the same time, he had like, you know, 65, 70% approval ratings because people thought the economy was doing well and that he was doing the job that they wanted him to do as president. And I think that's that's the challenge for Donald Trump right now. They sort of say, okay, we know that there are all kinds of issues about your personal behavior and things that you've said that trouble us. But if we feel like we're confident in the leadership you're giving us, uh, we can set some of that aside. And that, that's the great challenge for him right now because he's confronted with a huge crisis of public health emergency and there are questions yeah. about how effectively he's managing that. I mean, the economy has done, the stock market seems to gyrate up and down like a roller coaster every day, and you never know what's up and what's down. And I think, you know, given the economic consequences of the current pandemic and what it's doing to the economy, that's going to be a real, real problem for Trump because, you know, it's not, it, they won't measure him so much on issues of character, but it's really performance at the end of the day. And what do I mm -hmm. think, you know, how's my family doing? What's the future of our economy look like? Uh, you know, what are the prospects that I will have a better quality of life that I can pass on to my kids? I mean, those are the measures that I think matter in the long run. And, you know, Donald Trump is going to face some pretty serious consequences for all of this. But uh, look, the, the other thing, Michael, I would say is, you know, it's a long time to November. And so yes. I always hazard any kind of punditry about, you know, where things are politically because, you know, we don't know what's going to, what it's going to look like months from now. Well, let's turn a, a bit. We've talked about the candidates, but uh, what do you think should be the role of, of, of Christian, how should Christians approach this presidential election as you're teaching uh, seminarians, some entering the pastorate, I, I'm sure others will be in other positions of, of ministry. How are you encouraging them to think about how politics intersects with the life of the life of the church? We obviously are a, a Christian-based seminary, but I think this applies to a lot of people who teach theological education across many different of our, you know, monotheistic faith traditions. Yeah, sure. And one way or another, they all have something that would approximate a golden rule, which is, and this is the one that, you know, that Jesus Christ gave us, which is just treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself. Imagine what a politics would look like if you would say, I'm not going to run a campaign commercial that I would not want to see run against me personally. Um, I'm not going to go on the attack when, you know, I know that someone could just turn around and attack me in the same way that I, mm -hmm. you know, not that necessarily I need to love my neighbor or love my political opponent, but I do need to kind of think of a more gentle, you know, human way in which we guide the discourse that we need to have in our country. So 
I, I think that yeah, I kind of come back to some kind of golden rule for politics, which is that we change the way in which we uh, conduct our campaigns and conduct our elections so that we we actually make it hard for people to say the negative things that they say about each other, uh, to make the kind of character attacks that we sometimes see in political ads and we see in our political vocabulary. If we could, if we could dial that back a little bit and find a, you know, a more gentle way to actually debate our differences in a more authentic Genuine. I mean, there are differences. I mean, there's no no problem at all in sort of saying you. I have a totally different way of viewing what we should be doing on this policy or that policy. But we've got to find yeah. a way to have that kind of debate. And then, what's the role of the church? Well, the the church ought to be more engaged in upholding politicians and candidates to that kind of standard. And to get more deliberate about saying that's just out of bounds. That's not the kind of discussion that we want to have in our country. And our role as moral leaders and religious leaders is to hold you accountable for the kind of language that you use and the kind of advertisements that you run and to just say that's just not acceptable. Now, that, you know, as you know, and I know, it's a very, very hard thing for the religious community to do. You don't find many, you know, most pastors want to run out the door if the subject of politics comes up. It's not something they're comfortable with because they know that whatever they say or do is going to probably not sit well with half the people sitting in the pews. So, but we got to get them over that. We got to get them to a place where as long as you know that I love you and that I love this congregation and that we are in you know, we, we are doing our work together, you will tolerate me saying what I, is really on my heart and what I really think I need to say to be truly prophetic. If, if we can train congregations to be more accepting of that, and then obviously train clergy and people who are going to go out and pastor local churches to be more comfortable using that kind of language. And I think we get to a better place because, I mean, I would rather have, you know, I'd rather have conversations about politics in the future of the country in churches where people, you know, have to be, you know, reasonably well behaved <laughs> than, than on CNN all day long, mm. you know? I mean, because yeah. the, the, the way in which the media presents this, it's always like some kind of food fight. But I think we would have a different conversation if we located some of these important conversations about the future of the country in churches, in synagogues, in mosques, in you know temples. Yeah, yeah, th that's really helpful, Mike. Coming near an end, and uh, really appreciate so much of what you shared. I, I guess b before we we go, well, well one, I want to just ask, what's the the best way for for folks to uh, stay up on on your work and learn more about you. Before that, and this is a question we've been asking on the podcast recently. Just it, are, are there any flashpoints? Are are there any key factors that you see uh, over the next six or seven months that you, that, that you think are just going to be vital? Uh, in determining the course of the presidential election, is there anything that you'd you'd suggest uh, 
our audience here uh, keep keep their their eye on? Well, uh, a couple of things. I think you know national elections uh, are determined at the end of the day about the status of the national economy. So I think the one thing to keep very close eye on is what what is happening to our national economy as a result of the current pandemic. You know, we've we've got record levels of unemployment, and and that's not sustainable. That's not a good position for any politician to deal with, including an, an incumbent president. So I would I'd sort of flag that as that that would be the one thing I would keep an eye on. Um, the second thing was it was too self congratulatory about you know me, <laughs> but um, I would encourage people. We've got a great website, wesleyseminary.edu. And then if you go there, the Center for Public Theology, which is where I do most of my work now, is a good way to kind of uh, track what we're about and what we're doing. But, but we really we – we, we have a very inspired faculty. We are dealing with all of the – you know, we're, we're dealing with a semester that's coming to an end where we're having to teach all of our classes by Zoom, and we're not going to have a commencement in you know, a, a we're going to have some kind of virtual commencement, but you know, students who have worked hard, who are going to go out and serve the church, are not going to be able to march up and get a diploma, and that that's heartbreaking. That is really heartbreaking. So we're trying to figure out how do we recreate that experience, maybe sometime later in the year, in the fall, or something like that. But uh, you know, I I I just would encourage people to kind of roam around and and do the kinds of things that we you can do if you're sitting at home and you got nothing else to do there's a lot of, a lot of good stuff you can do you know with search engines and uh, a lot of we've had some terrific zoom meetings i mean zoom is like that that that's like has become my life now <laughs> I, I think finding ways to kind of remain connected with each other even in these times in which we are socially distancing I mean, I think that's something that the church has to reinforce and that we have to work hard at protecting. And uh, and doing, you know, Michael doing podcasts and people, you know, people have got more time to listen to podcasts now. So that's a good thing, too. That's what we're hoping. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for for joining. So grateful for your friendship and and your your work over the years, and uh, looking forward to keeping up with you as we see how how this race unfolds. But but thanks again for joining us. Well, you've done great work yourself too, and I think I think keeping this conversation alive and vibrant, particularly as it relates to the way in which the faith community and the politician interacts. I mean, that's you've been right mm. square center at that, and I think that's a, an important place to be. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, what a great conversation with Mike. This is someone who knows the ins and outs of presidential politics like few other people. So, so glad to be able to have him on. And then especially given his knowledge, his experience, I I couldn't tell you, uh, shouldn't tell you about the various points at which Mike has provided just essential guidance to public leaders about how to wisely navigate faith and politics in a way that was good for the nation, 
uh, good for faith. And, uh, a lot of those stories will, will probably never get told, but, uh, just know that we owe Mike, uh, a great, uh, a great amount of uh, gratitude uh, for that. Well, th- this is, uh, nearing the end of this episode. I would encourage you again. One of the ways that we're able to, to keep on doing this podcast. Uh, well, really a few ways. One is spreading the word. So would encourage you to, to share if you're benefiting from, uh, this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. Uh, that's, that's all so helpful. And then second, Melissa, my wife and I run a Substack and we were very honored to receive a grant from Substack, uh, that uh, was a recognition of their confidence in the work we're doing, the value we're bringing to readers, particularly during this pandemic. And so thank you to Substack. If you want to subscribe at Substack, we'd greatly appreciate it. It's probably the most consistent place where you'll be able to hear from us uh, with analysis and news uh, curation uh, about 2020, about uh, faith and politics generally. And also, we're just building community over there. So we, we love talking about uh, what we're cooking, what we're watching, what we're reading. Uh, you can go to reclaiminghope.substack.com. That's reclaiminghope.substack.com. Uh, this newsletter is read by political leaders, re- uh, religious leaders, uh, journalists, it's it's really been a, a great joy to to cultivate and and be able to serve this community really over the last gosh five or six years now and so would encourage you to sign up there. All right, I think that that's it. I'm not going to tell you who the guest for next week is, but oh man, am I excited about the guest for uh, next week? Read an article and thought actually Melissa said, "Wow." You should really have him. This is one heck of an article. You should really have him on the podcast. And uh, I dropped him a line. And within 24 hours, uh, we we had an interview scheduled. And so make sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast so that right when the next episode drops, uh, you you get it and can listen. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, this is Michael Weir. Please stay safe. Uh, Take care of yourselves. Take care of those around you. And stay well. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast.